podcast one production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. When you wander around pit lane or the paddock area of a racetrack, you'll sometimes hear the term car guy. It kind of distinguishes those who are athletes seemingly focused solely on the contest of racing to those who love the contest as well as having that strong connection to the wheels underneath them. Garth Tander is the latter. He loves cars. He has a muscle car in the garage at home, which we'll talk to him about on this episode, and he'll fire it up for us. On top of being a car guy, he's an impressive racer to boot, winner of the Supercars Championship in 2007, and a multiple winner of the great race at Bathurst. Garth and I spoke at Fox Sports Studios while fittingly waiting to be on a show about cars and racing. See, I told you he was a car guy. I'll take that. Car guy. Can I put that on my bio? You can, you can. (laughs) Uh, Like most, you started out racing carts as a youngster. Um, By your mid-teens, there were seven West Australian state titles in the trophy cabinet and an Aussie title as well. Can you remember your first cart and what that sensation of going fast was like? Where were you? I remember my first go-kart. It was an old second-hand thing that um, that Dad had bought and um, we got into karting through family friends. Um, Their kids were racing. And um, and uh, and Dad said, "Oh, we'll get the boy a cart and see how he goes." Because that like it was involved with motorsport as a mechanic and things like that. So yeah, it was a, it was an old cart. Um, I raced. There was me and one other kid, a friend of mine, Jamie Pages. I was eight years old, and it was a, in an old industrial suburb. The cart track was a dirt cart track. Started racing on the dirt originally. It was an old dirt cart track in an industrial suburb in Perth called Cuda. Uh, the track's not there anymore. And there was only two of us in the class, so I finished second in my first race. Um, and uh, and then that's how I started. So um, I don't remember the sensation. I was that's mate, that's nearly it was over thirty years ago. Um, but um, I did know from from that period on that I, I really enjoyed it. Like I was playing AFL footy as a kid back then as well and you'd play footy on Saturdays, race go-karts on Sundays. And I knew pretty much from that age that that was the, that, that driving was the, the direction I wanted to go in because um, you know I was reasonable at footy um, but at, by the time I got to about 10 or 11 I had to make a decision because footy comp changed to Sundays um, and I had to make a decision do I keep racing go-karts or do I go play footy and, um, and I chose the go-kart route. So um, I'm thankful for that because uh, I'm still doing what I love today. These days we only really know you as a, a Holden driver, the the mainstream part of your life in supercars. It's, it's always been a Holden, but back then you and your brother would travel to go-kart races in a Ford. Yep. Is that right? Dad had XR6s and yep. XR8s, is yep. that right? Yeah, we were Ford family. So <laughs> Dad was a massive Dick Johnson fan and Dad had XR6s. He had two or three XR6s and by the time I got my licence, borrowed Dad's XR6 a couple of times, <laughs> um, Yeah, cruising around. I scratched it once. I, I've never told him this, but I scratched it once. We were, I was out at a mate's place and I backed it into the letterbox or something like that. So what story did you tell him to... No, well, see, he didn't notice. I got home late that night so you do what you do is you park it close to the wall where the scratch was so you can't see it and I didn't tell him and then we went out as a family we went 10 pin bowling the next day 
and he still hadn't noticed it until we sort of been in the and then we come back and must have had a car, car park. Said, Dad, what's happened to your car? Someone scratched it. And he's like, Oh, some low life must have scratched it in the car park, and I got away with it. The first car I ever got my hands on when I was learning to drive was Mum's 1987 VC Holden Commodore, six cylinder, brown with a gold stripe, beautiful. I understand the first car you bought was a VC Holden Commodore six. Is that right? It was a VB, mate. VB. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was um, yeah, a similar colour, baby poo brown. Oh, it was exactly what I had. <laughs> um, um, I think that must have been the cheapest car at the time. Uh, didn't last long. Went to the... Because uh, I, um, I, um, I was working, when I got my licence, I was already working the former Ford team up at Barbagillo Raceway. So the, the, the back road out to Barbagillo got quite a workout. <laughs> um, and then I traded it, actually, on a because on a, the fuel was costing me a fortune driving up and to and from the track. So in the end, I traded it. On a little four-cylinder Mitsubishi Lancer, and I, I remember driving it from, I was up at the racetrack, and I had to go to the dealership to swap the cars for five o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, and I remember I was running late, so I thrashed the Commodore on the way to the dealership, and it, it had got the death knock. Oh, by the way, just in case you're wondering, a death knock is kind of when something horrendous is about to happen to the engine. It's developed a rattle or something really bad, and typically... It's about to blow. It had got the death knock up massively on the way in, so I stopped at the servo, poured some thickest oil in it that I could find and idled into the dealership, grabbed my car, the new car, drove out, and that was it. That was, I think, the uh, Commodore went to the great car out in the sky after that. They were the early days when racers are always doing it tough from a a money point of view, and, and the focus is the racing. Did you have enough left over to do any modifications to your first cars or did you not worry about that back then? Uh, no, I thought I was I thought I was pretty cool so I got the oxy torch out and lowered it with the springs, lowered the car that way. <laughs> Classy. Yeah, yeah, so the ride quality was strong. Um, and so I did that and then on the Lancer dad was trying to supplement the motor racing by started a new business with mag wheels importing mag wheels from italy it was actually fond metal they were formula one team at the time and yeah we we're importing these wheels into into perth with um with a friend of the old man and uh, so i got i got a set of uh, demo wheels on the lancer and lowered that lowered that properly i, I learned from the first time that you don't lower the car with the oxy torch so i got <laughs> proper springs in the lancer and but lowered it really really low and put an exhaust on it as you do. So it was really loud, really low. So it was one of those cars you can't take into car parks. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, that was that was the Lancer, um, which I kept all the way till when I started driving supercars. And then we sold that at the dealership at Gary Rogers and got a company car from then on. Crazy. <laughs> like most young racers, you went from karts to Formula Ford. You won the Aussie title in 97, and then you pretty much Stepped straight up to Gary Rogers and, and supercars. Other people went different directions, Formula Holden, whatever. Was that a dream come true? Was it daunting? What was that like at the time? Yeah, all of the above. Um, and it wasn't straight in because we won the championship in 97 in Formula Ford. And, and it was large. We had sponsors, certainly. But largely the Formula Ford deal was all funded by mum and dad. Um, I think dad did a lot of shonky stuff with the finances that mum didn't know about. <laughs> um, so um, uh, in the end, we finished that. We won the championship, which obviously very fortunate but we had no there was no money left at all no funding left at all to, to do anything racing wise so I finished 97 Australian champion in Formula Ford driving for fast lane racing um, and I was working for those guys full time as well as driving um, so I basically just was working full time I was working on in an engineering kind of capacity yeah yeah well we had just based a, like it was Perth based and the year that I did it we were based in Perth and then um, we set up another truck and, and uh, had some warehouse space on in Melbourne and I was spent the first basically first three months of um, 
of 98, sleeping in the sleeper of the truck and working on three Formula Fords in this warehouse in, in, uh, in Melbourne. And when those three cars were Christian Murchison, uh, Tim Lay, who I'm still very, very good friends with today, and Leanne Ferrier, who's now Leanne Tander, my wife. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a waste those first three months of not racing because I obviously met my wife, but um, it was tough because you, you're sitting on the sidelines as the reigning Australian champion and you, you're working on those cars still and, and no career progression from Formula Ford but then the opportunity came up with Gary's in April Steve Richards left the team he got an opportunity with Nissan Motorsport in the UK to, to drive in their two litre program when British Touring Cars was at its peak back then Nissan Premier wasn't yeah, it yeah it was with Nissan and um, and that left an opening at GRM and Jason Barguana was there driving in the in the second car and when I won Formula Ford um, Gary has always had always sponsored of a Formula Ford with Valvoline money and that Formula Ford in 97 the year that I won was Marcus Ambrose and he finished second behind me in the championship and Marcus had left and gone to the UK to race over there in the UK and um, so Gary knew who I was because I beat the Valvoline Formula Ford so he gave me a call and I dead set thought it was my mates playing a prank on me. <laughs> what so did you say? I said, yeah, righto, mate, no problems. I'd never spoken to Gary in my life. And it was one of those, you know, yeah, okay, mate, no worries. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then in the end, I was like, you know. A this minute, could be real. A minute or so into the conversation, I was like, oh, this sounds like it's real. I better recover this situation. <laughs> um, and, yeah, but like literally I had spoken to Gary for five minutes on the phone and I was on the plane. So this phone call was on a Friday and I was on a plane the following Monday and we tested at Winton on the Tuesday. What were those initial impressions of a supercar like? I mean, they're, they're raw, so much more power than a Formula Ford. They're the thing that all young Aussie race kids in carts and things generally aspire to unless they're going to go down the Formula One path. Mm. They're, they're an addictive thing, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And, and for, me, uh, for me to be a professional racing car driver was only ever going to be here in Australia. I mean, we certainly, we didn't have the funding to continue my driving here in Australia ourselves, let alone go to Europe or, the, or America and, and try and crack it internationally. So to stay as a professional race car driver, it was going to be supercars here in Australia. And this, this opportunity came up and I'd already driven a supercar a couple of times. I'd had a test with Dick Johnson racing uh, in 97 through John Bow. He teed that up. Um, and I did about 20 laps at Malala in a DJR Falcon. I had done about 10 laps prior to that in a, in a Falcon in Perth, an ex-Glen Seaton Falcon that was locally owned. Uh, and then I had done about 10 to 15 laps in the Holden Young Lions Commodore at the end of 97. So my entire supercar testing career was about 40 laps prior to <laughs> driving for GRM. And I certainly didn't sort of have my head around it a, a lot uh, at the start of the day because the cars are so wildly different. You're getting out of a 500 kilo, 100 horsepower Formula Ford into a 600 horsepower, 1350 kilo sedan-based locked diff, very little power steering, quite agricultural really, um, race car that... Um, completely different so um, it took me most of the day to get my head around it um, but in the end of the day I think I got reasonably close to Barks' time he was testing there as well the same day um, and yeah I got my head around it and that was on a Tuesday I had a meeting in Gary's office on the Wednesday and he said do you want to race this weekend it was Phillip Island so within seven days I'd gone from no prospect of driving a supercar on the Friday morning to speaking to a team owner for the first time to testing his car and then racing his car the following weekend at Phillip Island. That is Gary Rogers in, in many ways, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I want to come back because I, I picked up on your, your test there with Dick Johnson. As you and I sit here recording this, we're at Fox Sports. There's a legend show happening at the moment with uh, 
Fred Gibson, Alan Moffat, Jim Richards, absolute legends of the game. Was was Dick the main influence for you or, or inspiration, Actually, or was it no, someone else? It was uh, oh, certainly as a very young kid, it was because Dad was a big Dick Johnson fan. So I mean, we did that test for DJR at Mallard, and Dad was like a kid in the candy shop. He came to that day, and he's running around getting photos and carrying on, like doing the full embarrassing dad thing. For me, my influence growing up. Um, probably more so was Jim Richards. Once right. I was sort of, you know, old enough to sort of understand the game myself and, and my influences, it was Jim. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, um, you know, getting to know Jim through my career has been, you know, for me, one of my highlights, regardless, you know, up there with Bathurst wins and all the rest of it. Just, you know, I'm very good mates with Steve Richards and I see Jim socially every now and then and having a beer with Richo's pretty cool. He's incredibly versatile. I mean, he's going to turn 70 this year in 2017. He's still racing. Um, he was called affectionately in the public eye Gentleman Jim for a long period of time But you talk to the racers and they say He's anything but a gentleman He's quite on track He doesn't muck around, does he? <laughs> no, it's great, isn't it? Actually, when we were here They were doing the pre, um, pre-meeting for the, for, the, for the Legends show And, and the, the term Gentleman Jim came up And Alan Moffat, Mike Raymond, Fred Gibson They all just pissed themselves laughing Because <laughs> Gentleman Jim, my ass um, And... But to, to talk to him is the most quiet, most unassuming guy, and and like you said, really incredibly versatile. And mate, you could you could have a you could have a coffee with Richo, and he would ask you all about his world, and you'd have no idea that he is has been as successful and as um, revered internationally as he has been. I mean, I've known Steve's kids for a very long time since they were growing up and it's actually been funny watching them as I reckon it's probably only in the last three or four years that Clay and Priya oh. have realised that their, their granddad is actually a pretty 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 cool thing he's yeah. a pretty cool dude so um, you know like kids you're growing up it's just granddad yeah. let's go to 2000 Bathurst you win the great race for the first time for Gary Rogers uh, crazy day weather wise to top it all off you got burnt too didn't yeah. you tell us about that yeah yeah so um, I had the team radioed me. I was in the car. Um, back then, there were sort of 30, 33 lap stints uh, for, on a tank of fuel. And I was in the car with about 60 laps to go. And then they called me up about, you know, 45 to go. And said, how do you feel about doing a double stint? We, we, you know, we think it's going to be better for you to be in the car at the end of the race. Just give our listeners an idea. How long, roughly, is that in the car? Oh, that's... Oh, it's two, two and a half, two hours 40, something like that. Which is hard going. Yeah, it, it was. And, and and I was like, you know, I was 23 at the time. You, you, you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. So, <laughs> yeah, man, I'll do that. No problems. Um, and on my car, that, that year, we'd been running a side exit exhaust. So they were quite in their infancy back then. Like, no, not a lot of teams were running just single exit exhaust out the passenger side for weight distribution. So, But for Bathurst, the team were worried about that. That muffler lasting a thousand kilometres, so they went back to the old tried and tested dual exit exhaust. So, literally a muffler right under your backside, um, and we didn't. They didn't put any of the heat shielding back in that you normally would run. So, um, for, when we were doing thirty lap stints, thirty three lap stints in the first part of the race, it was fine. You, you'd get out of the car and you oh, that was a little bit uncomfortable, but you, you know, no dramas. But then when we did this double stint at the end of the race, um, I literally burnt my backside like literally and it was the size of you know decent it was like a decent sized pancake you know it was not a little one um and yeah i couldn't i couldn't 
basically after the race I couldn't sit down for two months afterwards um, it was yeah it was pretty significant and there's a 23 year old kid you're not going to tell anyone that your weaknesses or anything <laughs> like that so you sort of grin, you grin and bear it but it, yeah it took oh, I mean I still remember Christmas still having dramas with it so wow. yeah I've got a lifetime reminder of my uh, of my first ever Bathurst win it's just got to look in the mirror to see it but but <laughs> the pain was maybe made that little bit more bearable by a Bathurst win which mm. is huge yeah mate I mean I, it's the first time I'd finished the race so that was my third attempt it's the first time I'd finished it and I remember saying to Mike XL our engine builder at the time which you know you're 23 and super cocky oh mate all you gotta do is finish this race and you win it it's like how hard is it and then it took me nine years to realise after that that to get my second one that it was not quite that easy but um, but yeah I mean I was 23 years and six months I was second youngest to win it at that stage Lounsey was 22 and nine months or something like that um, I always seen through my career that Lounsey would always beat me to these career milestones or these these first stats by about six months so um, <laughs> but yeah it was it was amazing obviously um, GRM's first ever Bathurst win Gary um, is is a lot like Alan Moffat um, the year is um, Bathurst is equally as important as the entire other 11 months of the year um, and there was always a lot of preparation and a lot of focus put on the Bathurst race so for him to get that win um, certainly in that year as well we were pretty close in the championship we didn't quite get it but to get the Bathurst win you know it was really satisfying to share the car with Bugs get the win no one really thought that it would work because he's three foot tall and I'm ten foot tall but we made it work. This is Greg Rust and you're listening to Rusty's Garage more with Garth Tander in a moment. In this series, I speak to the most passionate automotive designers, collectors, riders and drivers I know. Matt Hall is not a driver, he's not a rider, he's not a designer either. In fact, he's not even living his life going flat out on terra firma. He prefers the skies. There was one time I was, uh, I was running on the deck in an exercise in an F-15 and I was doing about 750 knots at uh, 100 foot off the ground. So we're looking at around about you know 1,300 kilometres an hour, about 100 feet, um, in the middle of the desert, like near Area 51. And um, my fuel flow at the time was 110,000 pounds of fuel per engine. So 220,000 pounds of fuel an hour going out the back end. So yeah, yeah do the maths on that. Listen to the full episode with former Top Gun and now Red Bull air racer Matt Hall here on Rusty's Garage. OBD. OBD stands for Onboard Diagnostics. All modern road cars have some sort of engine computer in place that can tell you when something has gone wrong. Yeah, where's the fun in that? I asked Jamie Wincup this question recently because he's actually gone and bought an old race car that meant something to him and restored it and has it kept away. Is there a car along the way in your career so far that you would like to own or that you've got eyes on? Uh, I mean, I think ultimately I'd love to have the, the 07 championship car. Um, I, the, we still have the 2000 Bathurst winner at GRM. Mm-hmm. That, um, that's still there and it's still as we finish the race. So it's, it's only been driven twice since 2000, that car. Uh, and that's up in the mezzanine display at GRM, so that's cool. Every time I go to work, I see that car there. So um, I'm not sure. Gary's a used car salesman. I'm not sure I'll be able to do a good deal with him on that one. He'll, he'll, he'll win in that deal. Um, but the, the 07 car, I had a couple of goes at buying that off Lucas Dumbrell when he was finished with it, but he wanted too much money for it, or too much money that I could afford, so I never got it. And it's actually gone to a, um, to a collector and it's been fully restored back to the 07 car. But if, if I won the lotto, tomorrow and and the lotto was big enough um that would be the car i'd go after what was it like driving 
the 24-hour at Bathurst because Holden built a couple of weapon Monaros, 427Cs, 7-litre, 427 cubic inch engine. They were just a, they were a big tennis racket, mate, weren't they? <laughs> they were. That was taking a sledgehammer to to break open a bag of ice. You know, it was we had um, they were significant cars. There was a significant holding investment in that because obviously that was used as part of Monaro's relaunch in Australia when when that car was relaunched as a road car. And um, and GRM were the team that were tasked with building, developing, and driving them. And, and I was, I was driving a GRM then, and, and I was part of that project from from day dot. So, um, to 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 go to Bathurst and race there in the twenty four hour race was was unbelievable. But in saying that, the first race we didn't have a lot of competition. It mm. was it was, um, you know, we we had to change the fuel tank after the first six hours or something like that. We lost fourteen laps and we caught that up. So that sort of says how much, how quick the car was and, and how well prepared we were compared to the competition. But the race was in its infancy. I mean, we only, only did two races, but the race obviously it was first race. Second year we went back with the second car and, and Brock and Murph and Todd Kelly and Jason Bright were in the second car, and um, and because in the yellow that was the red car. And then in the in the yellow car, it was the same crew that we had the first year where we won. It was myself, Steve Richards, Cam McConville, and Nathan Pretty. So we were the we were the guys. When the second car came, the second year, we were like, oh, well, we're not going to let these blokes show up and win it. And especially Brock, we're not letting him have another one. Um, so so yeah, there was a bit of competition between the two cars, um, and we had a lot of fun. There was eight drivers, and we all got on really well, and we had a lot of fun. But ultimately, when it came down to it, the last hour, there was. We're trying to win it. Richo, Stephen Richards, tells me that because it's a 24-hour race, you'd, you'd have to force yourself to get some sleep. He said, I'd lie down and try and go to sleep. He said, but you could hear that mm. distinctive sound mm. of everything else. He said, so you, you'd listen and you'd hear it come back down. Okay, across the start-finish line, right, I'll try and get some sleep now. And then had to do another lap. He said it was near, near on impossible to sleep. It was impossible. Had, we, I think the target lap time then was around 2 minutes 15. So you had this 2 minute 15 second window to fall asleep <laughs> because you'd hear it go... We'd be staying in motorhomes in the paddock um, behind the pits and you'd hear it go past. Yep, we're still in the race. And then you got 2 minutes to try and fall asleep before it comes around again. So we didn't get a lot of sleep. But there is another story, the first 12 hour. Um, we, were, we had two motorhomes and four drivers and we had this sort of rotation system. Uh, Nathan pretty and I were sharing one motorhome and um, and Richo and Cam McConville were sharing the other one and that's just how it worked with the driver roster. So as each driver came in, they had to wake the other one up and get them, they'd go have a shower and get ready to go. And Nath came in to wake me up and said, oh, mate, it's all good, we're going okay, we're still going okay. And this is part of the phase where we're catching up through the race. And he goes, but I, I scratched it. Oh. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. And I said, how is it? He goes, yeah, no, no, mate, no problems, no problems, but it's just got a little scratch on. And um, I said, yeah, okay, no worries. But he said, don't worry, mate, we're still, we're still trucking on okay and all the rest of it. So it was about another hour before um, Richo was getting out. So you, you're out in pit lane. The first time I'd seen the other side of the car, because it was on the driver's side that he'd scratched it. And the first time I'd seen it is when you're standing out in pit lane and the car lobs and, and it's like a banana, mate. It is bent in half. <laughs> and I'm like, Nathan, scratched it. Like, I was like, how am I even going to open the door? Luckily, the door still opened. And, and so then when I went in, to wake him up I wasn't kind when I woke him up the next time I literally jumped on top of him with my helmet still on headbutted him so, mate <laughs> scratched our race car but anyway we got the race win was it a good car what was it like it was a good car everyone sort of says oh you know I mean to be honest we never really tried mm. to go flat out with that car except for probably the last three or four laps when Murph and I were battling at the end of the second one but Everyone sort of said, oh, that car would go sub two minutes. It was such a, such a sports sedan, such a hot rod. But it wasn't. It wasn't that fast down the hill. It was built to go up the hill. Mm-hmm. So at the time, it was quicker than a V8 supercar. So from the exit of turn two to the hump at the exit of the cutting, 
it was a second and a half a lap faster than a supercar in just that phase of the track because mm. it had so much torque, mate. It would pull trees out of the ground it had that much torque. But it was not that fast coming down Conrad. It would only do two, 255, 260, and most of the time we were half throttle saving fuel because seven litre engine, mate, they drink fuel like it's going out of fashion. So we're, most of the time we're driving the car to fuel economy numbers. Garth mentioned Murph there before. He's another Holden hero, a proud Kiwi, and we'll talk to him on the the podcast uh, in coming sort of episodes, I guess you could say. Racing, you said before, it's in your, your family. You talked about your dad, your wife, Leanne. She's the 2016 Australian Formula 4 champion. Does dinner time convo only <laughs> revolve around race cars? No, that's the last thing we talk about because it's so all-consuming for the rest of our day that the last thing you want to talk about is is cars and and um and racing and all the rest of it you need to have a bit of off time and certainly since the kids have come along that's you know now our our dinner time conversation is school and school uniforms and daily excursions and what which part birthday party they're going to this weekend so um that's probably changed our focus a little bit but you know leanne racing wise she's still i mean last year you said she won the australian formula four championship which is something she'd been really keen to win even when she tried to win it the first time in 99 and 2000 she didn't quite get the job done then she finished third but you know I look back at what she achieved last year she was she's studying full-time she she's gone back to study she's studying to be a psychologist she's managing the household she's effectively my PA she manages the two kids and then she went and raced and beat a bunch of kids that were 15 16 17 that that would kill you for the next grid position <laughs> and and took them on and beat them soundly um i look at that and just think man that was super super impressive um so i you know you look at that i'm a little bit in awe of what she achieved and people will say oh yeah but that's your wife you have to be but you know some people that have been involved in the industry for a long time have sort of come to me since then and said man what she did was pretty pretty special so i'm you know pretty proud about that when you go to those races with her you're not just supportive husband and, and dad you get right involved, don't you? Are you are you on on the tools? Are mm. you engineering? What are you doing? I'm on the tools, man. I do it all. Drive the truck there, <laughs> mechanic the car. So are we talking? Are we talking semi trailer? No, talking? we we used to have one of them. I mean, when when we had the F3, we had our own F3 team. Um, when Leanne was racing F3 prior to the kids, um, and we had our own full size 45 foot trailer. What was it Kenworth? What was uh, yeah, it? we had a Kenworth. We had our own factory. We had three full time staff. We had four Formula Three cars. It was starting to get a little out of control. <laughs> um, but now we have a very, very, very tiny little Isuzu truck. We call it the bread van because it looks like a tip top <laughs> delivery truck. So I drive that. Um, I uh, I work on the car. I engineer the car. I um, do the data, I do the whole shoot match. Uh, and I really, I love it, I really do. And, and people say, oh, that's, don't you have enough of racing? But that's like my golf, that's my hobby. Mm. I, um, you know, I don't, I don't play golf, I don't do other stuff. I just, you know, when I've got downtime, I'll go down to my shed and we've got three Formula Fords down there and I'll, I'll, or the Camaro and I'll work on that and that's, that's how I pass my time. You have treated yourself to a 1969 <laughs> Chevrolet SS Camaro, red for memory, mm-hmm. muscle car. Mm-hmm. You've always wanted one, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I um, really enjoy the, the history of motorsport and, and understanding um, the cars from from earlier on. So, I mean, I know all about the Group C touring cars and Group A, and then that sort of led me on to learning more about American muscle cars and the Trans Am cars that raced in the in the late or mid to late 60s through that period. And I, I actually read uh, Mark Donahue's book, An Unfair Advantage, who Mark Donahue raced for Roger Penske. Um, 
um, and uh, I was reading his book and uh, it's, uh, they talked a lot about the Camaro program that mm. they did through that period and, um, and I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty cool and then I've always read, you know, the, the historic car classifieds, those magazines that come out and sort of like the shape of the 69 and I was sort of watching the prices and they were going up and up and up <laughs> and I thought, if I don't buy one soon then I won't be able to justify spending the money so when I got my first... Um, contract after I left GRM because Gary won't mind me saying that he's not the biggest payer in pit lane. <laughs> um, uh, when I got my first contract when I left GRM, I, I sort of treated myself and, and I bought the Camaro in 2005, and um, I've had it ever since. And um, I'm thankful I bought it then because the dollar wasn't too bad. And um, um, and yeah, yes, yeah, I've had it since then. And uh, it was more the racing connection that sort of drew me to that car um, than the than you know its street cred, if you like. Was it here in Australia? Did mm. you get it out of America? What state was it in when you got? No, it was it was. I bought it out of Queensland, out of the Gold Coast. It, it, it was new to Australia; it hadn't been registered in Australia. It was it was a fresh import. Um, I flew. I read about it. I got emailed the guy through. He was a broker. Um, flew up, had a look at it, and Leanne, I took Leanne with me and. On the plane on the way home, I asked permission if I was allowed to buy it because she's, she's the accountant, she runs the books. So um, she said, well, if that's what you want, you can get it. So I got it and, um, yeah, yeah, had it ever since. Has it been modified? Is it a 350? What are we talking about? No, I bought it. As a, it's a 350 small block um, manual, left-hand drive, uh, four-wheel drum brakes. So that's good fun in traffic, <laughs> uh, getting it to stop. Um, so uh, I, I haven't done a lot of work to it. I've sort of just been maintaining it over the, over the journey. But the, the, the plan is, and I've been saying it for the last three or four years, is the plan is to do a full nut and bolt resto on it, take the strip it completely, um, soda blast it, and then have a look at what needs fixing and start from scratch and, and, and then I'll probably four-wheel disc brake it at the same time. But I'll keep it 350 small block and and keep it genuine to what it is. It certainly won't be a, a, a pro stock car. It'll be um, true to the, to the era for sure. Uh, here you go, Rusty. A uh, sound of SS69 Camaro, 350 small block, standard steel heads, uh, my summer baby. I said at the top of the chat here about you being a, a car guy. We've seen on social media, Garth's Garage and things like that, mm. you enjoy working on the car, don't you? That's, mm. that's a fun thing for you. Yeah, well, that's, that's sort of what I did when I left school. I One of my sponsors in go-karts owned an electronics business, which was telephone systems and satellite TV. This is pre-Foxtel. So um, he gave me an apprenticeship in electronics. Uh, as an electronics technician, and I lasted about not even 12 months and I just hated it I mean I was grateful for the job and for the opportunity because getting an apprenticeship you know was a big deal back then but it certainly wasn't me and I was, I was racing Formula Ford at the time and um, you know in go-karts I'd always worked on all my own go-kart stuff that was pretty adamant on me learning about the car as by working on it myself so uh, I went to the Formula Ford team that I was racing with at the time and asked if there you know if there any jobs going and um, and I started there and so pretty much from other than 12 months of throwing cables in the ground or in ceilings <laughs> as, as a try-hard telephone guy, I was been working on cars since I left school. So, um, I, I, like I said before, I really enjoy it. It's, um, it's my escape. 
you know, if you like, and and um, and it's but it's still heavily connected to what I do for a job. A couple of final questions. Dream garage. Would the Camaro still be yep. in it, and what else would be alongside it? No, my original Camaro would still be in it, but I'd build a brand. You can buy a, you can build a brand new '69 Chevy Camaro. There's enough, there's enough reproduction parts. So I'd build one that had. That was just crazy. Uh, and um, if someone was going to park the latest front-engine Ferrari in your garage and say you can drive that for a little while, I'd take it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not super practical now because <laughs> I can't tow the caravan or put the kids in the back. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate I get to drive a, a race car, you know, 15, 20 times a year, uh, which is, you know, you get you get your satisfaction from driving like that. I mean, I drive a Nissan Navara on the road. That's my I drive a diesel Nissan Navara nowadays. <laughs> Um, and that gets me from A to B, and um, and it saves a lot of money with fuel. <laughs> it's your twentieth year, full time in supercars. I'm picturing you in that Navara uh, <laughs> with a cap on. Twentieth um, year, full time in in supercars. Does it still give you the same buzz when you go out of pit lane? Um, and what does the future hold, mate? Because you you subbed for Mark Scaife wasn't too flash recently. He was a little little crook, and he missed a round of the championship. And you did a bit of commentary for us, and I think you did a, a superb job. Does that kind of thing appeal? Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, certainly. I still first uh, part part to your question with the driving stuff. Yeah, I absolutely. Still, still love it. Still enjoy the challenge of the competition that what supercars provides. Not only the competition from your peers but also the competition of driving yourself to continually be better um, and hey look I, to be honest I'm probably not as fast as I was from sort of 25 to 30 That I reckon that's your peak as a, as a driver um, you've got fitness you've got youth, you've got reflexes you've got it all going then um, I, I don't think I'm as good now as I was then from an outright speed point of view but certainly I really enjoy the 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 team aspect um, getting the whole organization working in one direction for one goal uh, and then when you have success as a team the the, the, the satisfaction of seeing that on everyone the seeing the satisfaction on everyone else's faces I really really quite enjoy so um, so I'm really enjoying the sport still. Um, what the future holds, there's, there's some options available. Certainly um, within GRM, there's some options there as far as um, managing um, the race side of the business because Gary has a, has a huge business portfolio away from the racetrack and, and, uh, and Baz will probably head more into looking after that other side of the business and I'll look after potentially looking after the racing side of the business or there is there's some media opportunity as well and I I enjoy that stuff I, I clearly remember when I very first started I hated it I hated talking to the media and it was yourself and Lee Diffie and Mark Osler and all these guys that that were really really patient with me and and taught me a lot that um that now I I sort of you know it's, I enjoy it you go in and they turn the bright lights on and the camera's there and and you have a bit of fun well you don't struggle we've, we've found that here today and as always mate very insightful great just cool. to chat cheers, a bit of cars with you thanks, thanks you. mate thank cheers. you cheers on the next episode of Rusty's Garage, I talk with motorcycle racing legend Troy Bayliss from his time living in Monaco, learning to speak Italian so he could communicate with his racing team mechanics at Ducati to his return to Australia with the family. So hard after all them years away and then you come home and you're so used to being racing week in, week out and maybe the, the spotlight, I don't know about the spotlight, but the winning or, or the the competition uh, when I went down to see the team at Phillip Island for the first round of the World Superbikes I was like 
like so depressed. I, I couldn't, I could hardly even go into the box and speak to the guys. It just felt so wrong to even be there. And that felt, I felt like that for years. But I sort of, you know, I, I test, used to go back and test the bikes and and do a bit of work with the guys. And always was always thinking, no, I should be back there racing. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastone.com.au. Listen to all the episodes of Rusty's Garage at podcastone.com.au via the Podcast One app or find us on iTunes. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Listener.